Warning, binge mode contains adult content. That's right. Big, big adult content, just like whatever's lurking under big baby grops. Very rough hewn clothing. So if that's not what you're into, please check out The Big Picture with Sean Fennessy. One more warning. Binge mode contains spoilers. If you don't yet know why you should avoid any I love you candies addressed to Mr. Filch, please proceed with extreme caution. And now, binge mode. I want you to listen to me very carefully, Harry. You're not a bad person. You're a very good person who bad things have happened to. You understand? Besides, the world isn't split into good people and death eaters. We've all got both light and dark inside of us. What matters is the part we choose to act on. That's who we really are. Harry, time to go. When all this is over, we'll be a proper family. We'll see. Welcome to Binge Mode Harry Potter. Yes! I'm Mallory Rubin, executive editor of TheRinger.com. Oh, it's a great website. Joining me today, now that he's finished blowing up the room of requirement for absolutely Blow no that reason. fucking shit up! It's Ringer staff writer, your headmaster, Jason Concepcion. Oh! I'll make short work of this because it's time for Binge Mode Harry Potter where we're exploring every facet of the Harry Potter universe. Whether you're... Partial to feeding Thestrals apples or raw meat, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, or Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please also rate and review us. Five points, five stars for Binge Mode. Also, Twitter or Instagram, mash that follow button at binge underscore mode, a.k.a. the underscore. Join our Facebook group, which is just for Binge Mode fans, and which is a great place to debate your favorite educational decree. There's so many to choose from. There really are so, so many. <laughs> so, so many. On Friday's Binge Mode Harry Potter, we concluded our very emotional discussion of a beautiful, beautiful novel, Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix, by exploring how remorse shapes chapters 37 and 38. And on today's episode, we are diving into the Order of the Phoenix film adaptation. (laughs) Requisite spoiler warning for today's binge as always. While Mm -hmm. the fifth Potter movie is today's primary focus, we will be going deep. Deep. On details from all seven books and eight films in the wider Potter canon. Mm-hmm. Taking the entire series into account from the moment we see Voldemort at the train station. That's right. Looks great in a suit all cleaned up. <laughs> so move away from that mistletoe. Mistletoe. I can't do it. No way she says it. Watch out for those nargles because it's time to They're head real. to the Hall of Prophecy. Mal, I just feel so angry all the time. What if, after everything that I've been through, something's gone wrong with the plot points? To try to avoid that, let's offer up a very brief refresher on what actually happened in the Order film by climbing aboard the Scarlet Steam Engine of Plot, the Hogwarts Express. Excuse me, Voldemort. I have to get on. Choo-choo! 
Harry's home for the summer, and he's on edge after witnessing Voldemort's return and Cedric's death. One night, it's Harry and Big D exchange insults in the playground. Looking great, Big D. Looking like he's in a Limp biscuit cover band or something. <laughs> it's quite a getup. It's fucking wild. What happened to Big D? <laughs> the sky darkens. Dementors arrive. Harry saves himself and his cousin with a Patronus, but he's put on trial for performing magic underage and in front of a muggle. The good news is that the Order of the Phoenix comes to the rescue, taking him via rather conspicuous public route from Privet Drive to number 12 Grimall Place, the Black family home. Mr. Weasley accompanies him to the Ministry of Magic where Dumbledore and a guest appearance from Miss Fig saves him from expulsion and then he's back off to Hogwarts. The new defense against the dark arts teacher is Dolores Umbridge. Terrible. High-ranking ministry witch who becomes mm. a tyrannical presence in the school and gives Harry and others sinister detentions. Hermione has a brilliant idea to fight the power, and they form Dumbledore's Army, a clandestine defensive group that meets in the Room of Requirement, where Harry also happens to enjoy his first kiss with Cho Chang. It's wet! So wet. It is wet. <laughs> Just before Christmas, Harry experiences a vision of a snake attacking Mr. Weasley down a mysterious corridor, and he alerts Dumbledore, who instructs Snape to teach Harry how to shield his mind from Voldemort using occlumency. The lessons don't work, and they stop completely when Harry observes Snape's worst memory, when James Potter tormented the teenage potions professor. In the meantime, Umbridge breaks up a DA meeting by literally blasting through the fucking and Dumbledore flees Hogwarts before he can be arrested. And she extends her control over the castle. She literally blasts a hole in the wall. It's wild. Harry sees another vision, this time Voldemort torturing Sirius. And Harry feels that he needs to rescue his godfather. After Hermione leads Umbridge into the clutches of the enraged centaurs in the Forbidden Forest, she, Harry, Ron, Neville, Ginny, and Luna travel to London where they realize that Harry's vision was planted falsely by Voldemort to lure him to the Department of Mysteries. They hear a prophecy about Harry and the Dark Lord, and then the Death Eaters arrive to take it. The two groups fight. Students soon bolstered by members of the Order. Bellatrix. Kill Sirius Black! With a killing curse, what? To the chest, and Voldemort arrives and duels with Dumbledore. The Wizarding World realizes that he's back! <laughs> Fucking fudge. That Voldemort is back, and Harry must grapple with the Death Yet another loved one. Phoenix song for Sirius Black. Phoenix song for Sirius Black. Jason. Yeah. You applied first for the Defense Against the Dark Arts podcast. Is that correct? Yes. But you were unsuccessful? Obviously. <laughs> but that means I'm here instead. If you'd like to hear us discuss every beat of J.K. Rowling's Masterful Order plot, we encourage you to check out the nine episodes we posted the last two weeks on that wonderful book. Today, we're going to focus on the film as both an adaptation and a standalone work by handing out some superlatives and house points by dishing out seven awards because seven remains the most powerfully magical number. Number one. The big idea of this movie is the darkness within. And one of the ways they evoke this, right in that first scene, Harry 
and sitting there in a sun-drenched playground mm-hmm. as one does. Mm-hmm. It looked like fucking train spotting at first. <laughs> <laughs> like, There's a lot more like this is a British film. Yeah, like that handheld running and yeah. you see the landscape that mm-hmm. is like could you, only be British. Even just the way that all the adults have pints of beer yes. at Grimald Place. Like <laughs> things like that. It just feels very British. And then at once the darkness comes in. Mm-hmm. And, and it doesn't go away. And it does not go away. And it is a not to say that there was not darkness in the earlier films, but the color palette certainly becomes darker and grayer and the colors become more muted. And that is all over this film. And it's right there in that very, very first scene. And then just also in the way that Harry, we open and Harry is sulking. I think the trauma is very present in this movie. And a lot of that goes to Radcliffe, who is... Mm-hmm really good in this movie. Yeah, he's great in this film, which he has to be because they're asking him to do more than he ever has before and he needs to hit so many different emotional Mm -hmm. notes. He needs to be able to convey despair at the beginning of the film based on what has happened at the end of Goblet and then sort of a different degree of misery entirely at the end based on what happened to Sirius and Harry's own feelings of culpability, the weight Mm. of the prophecy. Obviously, the film doesn't delve into that nearly as deeply as the book does, but in a way, of course, that just puts more weight on his shoulders to be able to say just with a line or a facial expression, this is what I'm feeling right now. And then he also has to be able to show the confidence of a leader, the buoyancy of saying, I am inspired because Neville succeeded, you know, to be able to show the giddiness and the angst and the nervousness of a first kiss for all of that to happen wet first kiss in one film is quite a challenge one of the interesting things that the film does with harriet is recalibrate slightly from anger and fury to depression yeah the vibe that you get from harry in this film is sadness and a sense of isolation not really feeling like He belongs. And that Mm -hmm. is obviously certainly present in the book in every single minute and page. But there's so much anger and angst in the book. Mm -hmm. And there, in essence, isn't time for that in the movie. And so what you get is a little bit more of like a steady rage from him. You know, you don't open with screaming matches like we do in the book. He's more beaten down in this movie. Deflated. Deflated. Disappointed. Another thing. So obviously the movie treats the vision somewhat differently than— the book does. In the movie, Voldemort is much more present in these episodes. And the thing I like about that is, you know, obviously a book, you can delve deeply into a character's psyche. We don't get that. It's impossible to do that in a movie. So we don't get that really subtle and delicious interplay between Harry and Voldemort in his mind where Voldemort desperately wants this thing. And Harry, of course, wants to resist him, but he also because he wants to know what the thing is so badly, becomes drawn to it. And then you begin to, the lines begin to blur. We don't get that. What we get is Harry seeing Voldemort and these kind of mirror gestures between them where Voldemort will move his head and neck in much the same way Harry is moving his as he's falling into these episodes. And so Harry is increasingly concerned. Am I like Voldemort? Could I become like him? And thus... The darkness within growing, he's afraid of that darkness that might be within him. And then when we get to the end and the possession takes place, the buildup is such that it is really quite dramatic because this is everything Harry's been worried about. And now here he is. He is inside of him, using him as a tool. 
So I think that part of it, thematically, this movie hangs together really well. Mm-hmm. Like the theme of darkness within is suffused throughout the movie. And I think this movie is good. I also think the movie is good. Yeah. And I, th- I suspect people will be surprised to hear us both yeah. say that. Here's the thing. Does that mean I think every choice in the movie is I mean, good? It's just impossible. Of course not. Yeah, Almost every scene contains some choice that I find yeah. maddening. Yeah. It's actually still to this day to me astonishing that the longest book yeah. is the second shortest movie. The level and extent to which this is condensed is wild. And a, mm-hmm. there's a lot of casualties to things that are precious to me and to readers everywhere as a result of that. But to examine it just as a film, I went back to see it multiple times. The first time I saw it, I was so mad about so many things. And then I said, you know what? Let me just try to go back and appreciate it as a standalone work. Let me see if I can do that. And, you know, look, is it perfect? No, none of the movies are. It holds together quite well as a film. It's Mm -hmm. well-paced. It's energetic. It has emotional through lines. And again, to return to the theme of the darkness within, the difference between Harry's anger in the book, which stems in many ways from feeling like, well, I've earned something. Right, and no one's giving it to me. And no one's giving it to me, and why? The movie in many ways plays it as doubt. Yeah. Crippling doubt about his ability, about what he's becoming, about what his connection to Voldemort means and makes him. And a scene, for example, like the voiceover of his letter to Sirius, Mm -hmm. like, that's a cheesy scene. Yeah, no doubt. But the substance of what he's saying in that about never feeling more alone, like, it's actually important that even in the less strong scenes of the film— the theme is still present. Those unifying threads and connective tissue are there. Mm -hmm. The scene at the Hogshead where they're recruiting members for the DA, the first meeting, you know, and Harry has the you don't know what that's like moment with the assembled. That's a good microcosm of what we're talking about here, about how in essence the same words and the same scene are conveying something different in the book and the film and coming at it from a different perspective. He's delivering that with kind of with rage in the book. Like, why do I have to explain this to these people who are here to watch me and gawk at me because they think I'm a freak and they want to hear me tell this story about the worst thing that's ever happened to me? And in the movie, it's played as you guys actually just could never understand what this is like because you haven't had to go through this. And that's subtle but notable. The moment where we get some of the most overt fury is after the attack on Mr. Weasley when Harry goes to Dumbledore's office. And in the span of mere seconds, he transitions from, Professor, will you please just tell me what's happening, which is said with great fear and longing, to then... Look at me. Right. What's happening to me? And he's terrified but also furious. And much of what the film cuts out is his fury at Dumbledore, which, listen, I don't want to go back on what we said four seconds ago when we said it's a fine movie, but cutting that out is very tough. Very tough. That's important stuff. I agree. There is necessarily a lot of the subtleties cut out of this movie. And the thing about the book is it's the subtleties that make it so strong and devastating at the end. One more thing about Radcliffe. In a lot of those scenes, I wanted that anger. Like the first DA mm-hmm. meeting, right? Mm-hmm. Where he's like, I'm not here to talk about Cedric. He delivers that almost matter-of-factly. You know, like, I'm not here to talk about Cedric, so if you want to hear that, right. I guess everyone can leave. It is almost like this world weariness. But, again, Radcliffe is great, and he delivers that in a way that's really committed and that I believed. I was willing to accept that as an alternate mm-hmm. version of the story. That's a really good point, and I think the other thing that that achieves 
is that it makes his emotional vulnerability in the scenes with Sirius and with Ron and Hermione stand out more convincingly and strongly. Like when he says to Sirius Acrimold Place over the holidays, I just feel so angry all the time. What if after everything I've been through, something's gone wrong inside of me? You understand, specifically because of how he's behaved in front of large groups of people, that that's only something he would say in private to this man who he trusts and loves, you know? And when he says to Ron and Hermione, I tried so hard to help and all it's done is make things worse. And then he says, maybe it's just better to, and Hermione cuts him off to what? to go it alone. He's not just saying that to them. Mm-hmm. He's saying that to himself in that moment. And you really feel what a letdown it is for him to believe that might be what it's come to. Yeah, the, I'm glad you mentioned the serious Harry stuff because I thought all those scenes were fantastic. I just Same. wanted more and more serious Black. I, I'm trying to be disciplined and not just shit on the Goblin movie all the time, which yeah. is hard for me, but it just makes the absence of Sirius in that film more of a tragedy because you see how crackling and emotionally resonant their scenes are together in this movie, and you're just like, I wanted more of them. We only have so much time with him. He encompasses a lot of this theme of the darkness within because, of course, here's a man from a family that largely supported what Voldemort's aims are. So. In a sense, he's like the lightness within this house. And so that scene where he's showing the family tree to Harry, it really hits, even though we don't get the portrait screaming and all that stuff. You really feel it, like the sadness of having broken with his family to the extent that his mother was willing to burn his name off the wall. And also, like, that tapestry is wrought so beautifully. Yeah, it's it cool. <laughs> looks really great. Yeah. I wish that we got to see more of the house and yeah, that, the too. cleaning efforts. And obviously, we don't get, like, a moment like them finding the locket and the, yeah. the little things like that that make the book so rich or yeah. are just not present here. But, yeah, that conversation between them in that room with the, the, the literal physical it's proof of his life behind them it. is really good. Let's move on to number two. Sure. Always our most extensive discussion of the movie pods. Best book to movie change and worst book to movie change. Let's start with the best first. I'll give you like a tiny, ultimately irrelevant one that I love. Start off with some sex here before we move on to some really heavier stuff. I really like that Harry clearly wants to fuck Tonks. She's like, Damn, she's, she's looking great. When she winks at him yeah. when they arrive at Grimmauld and his facial expression is just like, I'm a big man. I'm a, that's a big man. <laughs> I just love it because he's a horny teenage boy and he would respond like that to seeing her. It's great. I I don't know. I love that. (laughs) I also like that quite a bit. I'll say um, Sirius's chest tats, Mm. not necessarily canon, but they're canon now to me. (laughs) They're they're film canon for sure. They look really cool. I really enjoyed those. (laughs) He's got some neck tat action too. Yeah, he's got a lot of it. It's funny because in Azkaban, obviously, the tats play is like extremely menacing. And he's got the prison outfit and just he's coated in filth. And like now he looks quite like dapper and hipster. He looks like any Silver Lake dad. (laughs) (laughs) Another serious black one. Sirius showing Harry the photos of the Young Order instead of Mad-Eye. Really liked it. Any Harry-Sirius interaction is great. And that was so elegiac. And I love that line when he says, I guess you're the young ones now. Yeah, I have that in best quotes. I love that one. I just love that scene. Also, like the wild juxtaposition of like these two wizards sitting in a waiting room (laughs) in Cakes Cross. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. 
that's amazing. The moment when you see him, like his outline, his yeah. silhouette transforming from the dog into the man, it's like, all right, yeah. people can see you. But yeah, I go back and forth on that change and whether mm. I think it's bad or good. I kind of feel both ways about it because that's like an important moment of introspection for Harry in the book. And I sort of think that he only gets to that point because he's like so horrified yeah. by the way that Moody presents the photo to him as like something that he thinks would be a bit of a treat, right? That's the way it's described. And running through the laundry list of tragedy that befell almost every person in that photo is so jarring and makes Harry feel the stakes so keenly of how much danger and peril these people really Mm -hmm. are facing. And it sits on his chest kind of like a toxic weight. And I think that's important, and I miss it being positioned that way. However, there is no doubt that it is an effective scene and an effective repositioning. And I agree with you that basically every scene between Harry and Sirius is well done and something to cherish. Mm -hmm. And flipping that around and saying, okay, instead of making this something that bums Harry out and depresses him— Make it a source of inspiration. You know, make it something that he wants to pin up in the room of requirement. That's there at DA meetings to inspire all of them to say they did it before and it's our turn now. I like that. Yeah. Another thing about that scene, I just think it works thematically. Again, I'm willing to buy the changes in this movie in the way that they support essentially a different story. And that's, you know, that's why I like this scene. All right. Now, if I had my druthers, I'd change absolutely nothing about Luna from the books. You know, everything is perfect and let's see it as such. However, again, given that that cannot be the case, I enjoy that we get a Luna-Harry bonding moment much earlier in the film. The end of Order of the Phoenix, the book, when Harry and Luna connect emotionally and she unlocks some peace and comfort is perfection. So glad they kept that in there. However, the fact that we get a little taste of that earlier Mm -hmm. in the film is effective because. You need to know who this character is, first of all, and you're not getting just as much time with her as you would in the pages of the book. We're not getting the Thestral Magical Creatures lesson, so it's nice to be able to learn about them a little bit in this moment, and it's interesting because of the way that they bond and bind Harry and Luna, two people who can see them, two people who have been touched by death. All of that right there, and you see the oddity of Luna. You know, she's barefoot. She's carrying around raw meat in her satchel. Like, all of that is great. I I love the when he asks her, are your feet cold? And she's like, a little bit. Yeah. (laughs) She's just like, yes. Yeah. So I just like that we get to see them kind of find each other and find some common ground and understanding a little bit earlier. You know, as Harry is going through this movie feeling so alone and Mm -hmm. so misunderstood, it's nice for the viewer to be able to say, well, there's somebody else here who— actually does in some way get it. Small scene, but there's a moment where Harry comes upon Fred and George consoling a first-year boy who's not named in the production notes because he's been in detention with Dolores and you uh-huh. continue and they're telling him, you know, it's okay. Pain goes away after a while. It's, it's fine. And then Umbridge herself comes up and she kind of gloats over them. And that's the moment they decide that their futures lie outside of academia. We don't really get 
a sensitive moment with the twins. And so to get that there was, I thought, really wonderful. I really quite enjoyed that. To get that moment where they're not just pranksters. They really do care about the other students here. And there's this kind of like esprit de corps among the student body in general, kind of as a reaction to Umbridge. And to play it through them as not just this kind of like malevolent pranksterish force, but also in with this kind of like sensitivity and kindness in the face of this oppression is I thought was really wonderful, and I quite enjoyed that. Particularly to this point in the films, they've been reduced, again, just because of the limitations of runtime to comic relief. And they're obviously immensely gifted at serving as comic relief, and they're hysterical. But to see a little bit of that heart. And so much of what comes out of these films, unfortunately, is like moments with the Weasley families, moments between the twins and Molly, things like that. And so to get a little bit of that heart and to understand, because one of the things that we, you know, we've talked about this in the book pods that's so special about them as characters is that. It's actually inspiring how committed they are to pursuing what they believe in. And it's important to understand that it's not just fucking around. You know, it's not just experimenting on other students and not caring who they maybe kill or maim, though, again, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> it's that they're fighting for something important, and and the film conveying that is long overdue. I also quite like the first— Umbridge-centric montage. So there's another one later that that. is intercutting educational decrees and Umbridge's tyranny with scenes of Dumbledore's army. I'm talking here specifically about the first one where in a quite concentrated span of time, pretty early in the film's run, we get a lot of Umbridge. It starts, you know, with Umbridge and McGonagall on the stairs and and that moment when McGallion kind of steps down and you see through the physical adjacencies where this woman thinks she ranks and intends (laughs) to rank. And then it just plays out like almost in full. You know, we get quite a few educational decrees and Umbridge moments to come later. It's not like everything is here, but enough of it is here that you understand right away what kind of menacing presence you're dealing with. Mm -hmm. And I think it's smart narrative restructuring because in the book, if you had that much umbrage in any one spot, it would be almost unbearable. You know, the the extent of her evil, it's so like debilitating to spend even a sentence with her that to get basically nothing but her for a large swath like that, it would be like you had the tattoos all over your own body. Mm -hmm. That's what it would feel like. But in the film, because ultimately we need to jumpstart Dumbledore's army and we need to get Umbridge simultaneously established as a force of evil and concern in the school, but also kind of established as a B-plot to the Mm -hmm. ultimate prophecy Voldemort storyline, concentrated dose of her early, sets that up quite well, and then allows everything else to stem from that pretty smoothly. Yeah. Another one, you don't really get a lot of some of the more comic moments of past movies, but one thing I did like was the ongoing sight gag of Filch hanging the educational decrees Mm -hmm. (laughs) and needing a taller and taller and taller, progressively taller ladder to the point where it just becomes like ridiculous and the ladder is teetering and even on the top of the ladder, he then has to stretch even higher and then the camera pulls back and you see literally how many decrees Mm -hmm. are. That was quite delightful. Yeah, and the physical comedy of Filch is 
always pretty strong. Yes. When those moments when, it, as you say, the ladder has gotten so tall that he's like swaying dangerously. Yes. And, you know, Mrs. Norris is and, just kind of looking up at him. It's and by great. the way, you need that because Filch is a fucking dark human being. Oh, like, yeah. if you don't get that with Filch, you're like, this guy is perhaps a serial killer. Like, it would be too, 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 too much. Like, yeah, get the chains and the manacles. <laughs> you know, like, if you don't play him as a clown a little bit, then you're like, literally, why is he around children? Why is this allowed? But why is he around children? Yeah, why, is allowed? <laughs> why is it allowed? <laughs> One more positive sure. change. No quidditch in the movie. It's great. A lot of quidditch in the book. And look, again. Weasley is our king. Yeah, tough look for our guy, the Weasel King, to not get this storyline. <laughs> we feel bad for Ron. However, we're going to get it in Half-Blood Prince. Great. And so is he. One, <laughs> <laughs> one. The ideal execution here would be 10 to 12 hours of Netflix adapting that we have written for Netflix. Netflix, come at us. Yeah. We will adapt this for Hello. you. But given that it's only a two-ish hour movie, you got to strip out the Quidditch. If something's yeah. coming out, that's the first thing to go. And it also, the trickle-down effect of that is that Ron is with Harry and Hermione at certain key moments, like the mm-hmm. Grop scene. He's just there, which in the film's universe makes infinitely more sense than them having to then devote another scene to catching him up on it or him never knowing about it. So in terms of the things that had to be sacrificed or condensed, I I was very okay with this being one of the bigger cuts. Two more quick changes that I liked. One, and this might be a divisive opinion. Zach Cram, for example, left a note in our Google Doc saying he disagrees with this. I like that when Sirius arrives at the ministry, and says, get away from my godson, he punches Lucius, like muggles would. And here's why I like that. I understand that they're wizards, and they have wands, and they can do magic. And guess what? They do a lot of it right after this, and it's dope. But there is a human rage and fury that is conveyed in that moment, and a protective instinct that I think flesh-to-flesh contact Mm. conveys quite effectively. And I would argue that J.K.R. agrees and has given us similar moments in the books. For example, Lucius and Arthur at Flourish and Blots, they come to physical blows in Chamber of Secrets, right? right. And we also get the students physically doing battle after the Quidditch match in order. So we've seen this before where sometimes, again, it's just human nature to say, I just need to throw myself at this person. I need to feel their cheekbone crunching under my hands. And so I like that we got that. And then, of course, the ensuing ripple effect of that is that Lucius, who has the prophecy, Mm -hmm. he's the one who smashes it, which I like. That feels like the kind of you're going to be in real, real trouble with Voldy thing that should have happened to him. I enjoy that compared to Neville smashing it in the books. And then my last positive change, and I quite like this one. This actually might be my favorite. I love that Voldemort is the one who gives Harry the you've got to mean it speech about the unforgivable curses. That's obviously Bellatrix in the book. And I just like to see Voldemort kind of flexing and fucking with Harry. And then he immediately starts taunting him for his weakness. He he just disarms Harry with a wave of his hand. I love the fact that it was a Mm nonverbal off hand, not even the wand hand. Easy. Easy for him to do it. Just 
swats it away, swats it, Expelliarmus without saying anything, without even using his wand. Easy. And just bats it away from him. Yeah, I just, I don't know. And Bellatrix is cowering on the floor, and there's that moment where you think, is she afraid of Harry? And then you realize that Voldemort is there, and she's like, are we going to fuck? And is Harry going to watch? She's so, um... She really is quite visceral. Like even just the yeah. way it's oh, so. Oh, Lena Bottom Carter came to play. Uh, yeah, she did. It's <laughs> even the way she kind of, almost in a cat-like way, slides back into the fireplace, mm-hmm. like on all fours, like oh, like yeah. skittering out of there. Do you think they do like animalistic role play? When yeah. they- <laughs> Fun note along those lines, by the way. This is something Cram dug up for us. This is from JKR in 2008, so long, long, long before Cursed Child and Delphi enter our world. There's this thread running through the books, What Love Does. In Bellatrix, it was, as I think is clear, but I doubt that people will be particularly shocked to hear, because I'm sure they've deduced that Bellatrix is madly romantically in love with Voldemort. This is, that's the obsession of her life. I believe that Helena Bottom Carter had to be asked to tone it down. I like it. (laughs) The producer called me and said, give me some background on Bellatrix so we can tell Helena about it. And I said, well, of course, it's a sexual attraction. She's madly in love with this man and obsessed by him. And apparently they had to ask her to bring it down because she was being a bit too sexy. I love this. I know. She's like, what is she doing? Like just grabbing his cock through the fucking ropes? (laughs) When she was was sliding backwards into the fire, was she like pulling a Roz on the turnip cart? What did they have to tone down? She's pretty toned up the whole time. It's fucking great. All right, how about the worst? Plenty to choose from. Man, it's tough. I'm going <laughs> to, let's see, how about Sirius unambiguously getting hit with Avada Kedavra and then blinking like what happened to me, Right. not dying right away. Well, there's that one, which is just that's not how the magic works. Yes, he and should be the, dead. The films make this mistake a lot. Yeah. And not specifically with Avada Kedavra, but just like the spell that is cast does not result in the thing that is established canon. and. Right. Those are the kinds of mistakes that really gall me because there's no reason for them. Right. None. Hit him with a stunner and have him fall back into the fucking arch. Right. So the other thing is, it's, as we discussed, at length in the book podcast. And again, if you haven't listened to them, please do. We'd love you to. Part of what makes Sirius's death such an unbelievable, debilitating tragedy is that it didn't have to happen for like yeah. 50 different reasons. And the fact that he's hit with what is previously described in the prior casting attempt as a jet of red light, and then he falls through the veil. And Harry doesn't think he's dead, thinks he can just peek beyond the veil to go to the other side and that he'd be there, that he can come back. Like, his inability to accept what has happened and process his grief because it is not so cut and dry as right. this one is unambiguous what happens yeah and it, it just the way that harry's grief unfolds and that he has to process it and that is we he as dead readers like watch it, right. that happen is is one of the most stunning achievements in the entire series and the film that choice just literally saps that out of existence and that's yeah. a huge bummer while we're talking about serious i got another one for you yeah this is a tough one i know what you're gonna say Sirius's last words That's very, very to Harry being nice one, James, yeah, I, like I will never recover from. I, I think that— Never. I, I'll say this. The, in the book, there is a clear, at least to me, when he's like, aha, like you can do better than that, trash talking with Bellatrix. The weight of the story up until that point leads me to believe, at least, that he's showing off for Harry. Mm-hmm. He wants to 
really impress his godson, much in the same way as you noted in our podcast, that he and James would play with each other and one-up each other in order to, like, they have this chemistry. But to just lay it out there like that in this brain fart kind of way (laughs) really cheapens the relationship. Yeah, that's the thing. Like, look, a huge through line of their relationship in the book is— how much Harry reminds Sirius of James. Mm-hmm. That's there. That is canon. You know, Molly has to say to Sirius, he's, he's not, not James. James. Right. Like, so I'm not denying that Sirius does actually think, that's right there. oh, I have James back. Yeah. I have my best friend back. Of course, that is a core part of their relationship. Yeah. But this is literally their last moment together. So- and for that to be the last thing, like you right. said, simultaneously just it being a mistake. It's like I don't think of Sirius as being someone who makes mistakes. I think of him as being really reckless right. and ruled by emotion, much like Harry is, but not someone who just makes mistakes. And then it cheapens their bond. It really does it, cheapen it, it their does, bond. It cheapens it. Because they have found something extremely meaningful in each other that they are building together. Right. A new family and a new life. And of course that has roots in the past. That's part of what makes it powerful. But the past doesn't replace the present. And that's what that line I'll does, say this. and I hate it. I'll say this. That's a line that you need to react to. You do that in the middle of the arc of their relationship. You don't right. do it at the end. Yeah, right. It's the last moment they yes. share together. I just yeah. can't stand that. And in general, I'll say, while I love every scene, mostly, other than that moment, that Harry and Sirius share in the film, mm-hmm. I don't love the change in Sirius's overall emotional state. Specifically, he's not glum in the film. Yeah, you don't get any of that. That's such a motivator in terms of not only the decisions that he makes, but the decisions that Harry makes. Understanding that recklessness, again, we explored that theme of recklessness in the book pod, and it's a lot of where Harry's anger toward Dumbledore goes. I agree. You didn't care that he felt this way. You made him feel this way. You let him feel this way. And it's like he's not feeling any type of way in the movie mm-hmm. other than wanting to protect Harry. And so then you don't have that like, well, why did he go? He knew he shouldn't. And again, part of the tragedy of his death is that there's so much regret in all parties. So many people thinking, I let this happen. And taking that aspect of Sirius's character arc away just removes some of the complexity. I agree. And it's a two-ish hour movie. You can't have as much complexity, but that's an important one. I I, I miss that. Along those lines, I understand, again, why this scene was cut out, but I I miss it as as an emotional touchstone. Mm -hmm. The fact that we don't go to St. Mungo's, I think, really removes the fire behind Neville's arc. It's just not there. His mastering those spells in DA, the way he applies himself, the way they kind of drive Neville's arc is he can't do Expelliarmus, and then all of a sudden at the Battle of the Ministry, he can. All of a sudden in the heat of battle, he can do it, and it's and Luna gives him that, good job, Neville. And there's also like Bellatrix taunts him. But the fact that you don't go there removes a couple of things. One, we don't get to see the Weasley clan kind of bond together around Arthur's injury, which I think was really, really, really important. Mm -hmm. That's just an important emotional note. And to not have that was really tough. And then we also just don't get Neville's motivation for being in this world and what he is, the people he's trying to live up to. And And it just, you lose a lot of the fire in that battle of the ministry and everything having to do with Neville because of that. I, I really, really missed it. And it also, it just makes Arthur's attack seem so much less serious. The yeah. fact that he basically recovers 
off screen in a moment. Right. It's just like he's, oh, my God, Arthur, he's been uh, grievously wounded. He's hurt. And then he's like, hello, I'm back. Feeling great, guys. How are you? I have so many responses to what you just said, all of which I agree with, obviously. Where to even begin? How to organize my thoughts here. Part of the reason that they don't feel like they need to make Arthur's injury as serious is because they take out all of the ensuing, and you mentioned this earlier, how Harry justifies his lack of discipline to himself. Well, look what I saw. Look who I saved. It's gone. It's gone. It's gone. The Also, what you said about the Weasley family— Again, this gets back to, like, why a moment like the one we witnessed with the twins in the first year is important. What we're missing when we don't get the fight with Fred and Sirius, like, that is a, oh, this is as serious as it can be for everybody moment. Like, it's important to understand what the other characters are giving up to side with Harry and Dumbledore. Like, Molly's bogger not Mm -hmm. being in the film falls into this category, too, right? And it all falls under that umbrella of— the Weasleys and the stakes for the Weasleys specifically, mm-hmm. like they are putting their entire family on the line to support Harry because they believe in him and believe in what he stands for and believe in Dumbledore and believe in this fight. And we don't get moments like that where, you know, Sirius says to the twins, like your father chose to be in the order. He yeah. chose to do this and he wouldn't thank you for messing it up. Right. Like the cost of war yeah. is just not conveyed in the film's nearly to the extent that it is in the book, and you feel it in a moment like that. As far as Neville, a couple things. It's one of my favorite scenes in all of the books. Yeah. The St. Mungo's It's moment. very important for him as a character. I also think it's really important for Harry. Yeah. And particularly in a book where Harry, and I say this with nothing but love for Harry or for the narrative choices around Harry in Order of the Phoenix, it's a book where it's a lot of the what about me for yeah. Harry. And it's really imperative for him to say, well, what about other people? Mm-hmm. And when he sees Neville taking the gum wrapper from his mom, that's like it's that devastating. really matters. The yeah. impact that that has on Harry is hugely important. And it's just not the same to have Neville and Harry standing in front of the mirror and Neville agree. saying, 14 years ago. Yeah, doesn't hit the same mark. It's not close. No. The choice to not only remove or compress a lot of Neville's emotional arc and mm-hmm. character development. If it just had to go, that would be bad enough. But Neville does get extra minutes. And instead of going to that, they're going to him basically operating as a stand-in for Dobby. And this is two movies in a row now where that is true. In Goblet of Fire, he's the one who gives Harry the gillyweed and figures that out for him instead of Dobby. And then in this movie, he's the one who discovers the room of requirement. And it's like, first of all, give me the fucking Dobbinator in these movies. I want Dobby to be in these movies. But also, if you're going to devote a certain amount of time to Neville, make sure it's for these extremely resonant moments that really matter to a lot of people. And the actor, Matthew Lewis, feels the same way. He gave an interview in 2009 where he expressed regret for the St. Mungo scene not making it in. And he said of that scene and his reaction to reading it in the book, and I thought, that's Neville. I'm going to cry. I didn't think I'd cry on the movie pod. That heart, that courage, that belief showed what Neville Longbottom was all about. Speaking of... Neville and the Room of Requirement. We've joked about this a little bit already, but let's can we actually seriously talk about Umbridge blasting the Room of yeah, Requirement like out of existence? Bad. It's like all of a sudden we're in the like one of the raid movies or Fast and the Furious. It's like she's just going to blow through the wall. Uh, what is that? That's my issues with this are twofold. One is that 
The issue before that is the fact that Filch is onto the room yes, basically yes, from yes, yes, jump. Yes. So if that is the case, if they understand that these students are sneaking away to this mysterious room and probably gathering because the decree has already been passed. Mm-hmm. The decree was passed as soon as they see them come back from Hogsmeade. Right. Why don't they just round the, Why are they waiting for evidence? <laughs> Umbridge has... Umbridge n- doesn't need evidence. Ever, Umbridge <laughs> does not need some kind of like evidentiary meter to be filled. She's not waiting. Well, we don't have enough on them. So we obviously we don't have. A, no, she would just <laughs> round them up yeah. and make them write something and torture them and be like, what is happening in this room? Right. They're not going to wait. Right. So wh- Why? I don't understand that part of it. And it also makes the room of requirement much less cool. The fact that Filch just knows where it is immediately. Yeah, I guess from the perspective of the filmmakers, it enhances the ability to visually play with the idea of them getting away with something. Right. The idea of them literally like under the nose of authority sneaking in and out. I, I get it from that perspective. But it is in terms of, you're right, the magic of the room and the impact of and also just the cleverness of the plan. Yeah. It saps a lot of that. And then I assume the other thing that you were gonna say about the discovery is getting rid of your favorite permanently disfigured Hogwarts student. Shouts to my gal. (laughs) Marietta Hedgecomb. Shouts to my gal, Marietta the Snitch. You got what you deserved, baby. (laughs) (laughs) Switching that to Cho, even with the ultimate reveal that she coughed up the information after imbibing Veritas serum, really bad storytelling choice to put that on show instead of Marietta. 100% agree. And you know what? All of this is part of what I think, and I think we probably agree on this, is probably the worst change. And that is Hermione no longer being the driving force behind the DA, the mastermind behind all of this stuff. Because we don't get the cleverness, we don't get Hermione and the jinx parchment and the communication and just how much thought she put into this. Yes, she puts forth the plan. Hey, here's what I think. And ostensibly, because we then cut to Hogsmeade, ostensibly she contacted all the people who were interested and got them together. But we don't get her intelligence and the drive behind this plan. You know where I miss it the most? Tell me. Not having her question Harry about yeah. the serious vision and really force him to that think. I mean, there's is the, the moment, the one moment on the moving staircases yeah. where she's kind of like, Aah! yeah. But she is so insistent in the Ins- book yes. that he Incessant. is being duped, yeah, and that he really needs to pause and think and consider. Yeah. What about the calculus? this? What about to the did point they not where, say to this? To the point yeah. where she hurts him yeah. when she says. You got a saving people thing. And she does not say that lightly. No. She knows what it's going to cost for him to hear that. But she also knows that it needs to be said. And the theme of Hermione's character throughout the entire series, but specifically Order of the Phoenix, is she knows what needs to be said and she doesn't care what it costs those boys to hear it. And there are good Hermione moments in the film, but there are a lot more. and, And these are important and we'll talk about them in a bit. But there are a lot more about like what it's like to be a teenager and less what it's like to try to save the world. Yes. And that's a strange choice. A few more. Sure. A couple Snape ones. Occlumency beginning literally right after Harry's dream about Arthur being attacked. This obviously connects to what you were talking about earlier about all the stuff that's cut out in that section. That's one of those I get why you do this, but I disagree. Again, like I get it logically. You can't have Alan Rickman just read like 90 pages worth of yes. <laughs> monologuing and or very crackling dialogue, right. but 
I would actually like to see that because yeah. those lines are just, it's just fabulous writing and everything that he says to Harry in those scenes really, really matters. And it conveys not only a lot about what Harry does or doesn't understand, but about Snape's history and, and what we will ultimately learn about that. And obviously that's among the, the most significant things in the entire series. We just get very little of it here. Here's one specific example. Tell me. Harry says, he'll be able to read my mind. And instead of saying, basically, you're a fucking idiot who doesn't understand actually how magic works or how the human condition works, he says, read it, control it, unhinge it. It's like, no, you don't actually understand the character or the scene or why this matters if you're making a change like that. So in general, I regret that all of these extremely nuanced, complex interactions are just you know, boiled down to something that is like kind of all there on the surface. And then specifically with Snape's worst memory, this bugs me. This pisses me off. Yeah. I get it. It's all about James and Snape to this point in the films and also to this point in the books. We don't know about Lily until the end. But when we find out about Lily, one of the things that we come back to is this moment Mm -hmm. where we see him call her a mudblood. And it's one of those things that forces you to reconsider everything you've understood about the character in the series. And you don't get it here. You just get Snape and James and Sirius and Lupin. It's rapid fire. You don't get the moment with him and Lily. And to me, I've always thought, okay, here's the thing I love about her writing and about her storytelling. Snape's worst memory. Why is it his worst memory? When you're first reading it, you're first experiencing it, it's because it plays as embarrassment, shame, Mm -hmm. the humiliation of being bullied by the cool kid, right? And then when you reread it after what you ultimately learn in The Prince's Tale, you understand that the real regret for him there is what he said to the woman he loved. That's just not here. Let me piggyback on that. And this is, I think, a little bit more of a nitpick. Mm -hmm. I didn't like that Snape's worst memory was revealed via Protego and Mm -hmm. not with the pensive. Because it's Harry defending himself as opposed to deliberately intruding on Snape's privacy. Yes. And there's something very, very essential and important about Snape's character that is revealed simply by the fact that he's removing these memories and placing them for safekeeping in the pensive. right. I don't want you to see this. Yes, that is small, but it's crucial. Yes. And I get that this comes off as a little bit of a nitpick because, yes, it's much more efficient. You do it that way. I think that there's something absolutely essential in the fact that he needs to safeguard these memories from this boy who is the son of the man that he hated. It's a fabulous point. I'm so glad you made it because one of the themes of the series is who are you? Right. Is who you are what you show people or what you choose not to show them? And one of the true brilliant things about Snape's character is that it's the latter. Mm -hmm. He is the things that he hides. And to not have him hide it, just again, it removes that from the equation. How'd you feel about the amount of creature we got? I don't think we got enough creature. We did not get enough creature. Creature, for as nasty as he is, quite wonderful. (laughs) Quite wonderful character, wonderful change of pace. I love the part where Harry Potter and then like serious comes, creature! Yeah. I also want Sorry more of about the portrait, that. like I, shame yeah, of my flesh I, and lines I like that. I love that. I felt like we didn't get enough of it, especially because Creature essentially is the mechanism by which we come to understand that along with the tapestries that Sirius really is the black sheep of the, <laughs> the black sheep, the black sheep of the blacks. And therefore, I think we needed more of him, at least another scene. Considering how important he is to the plot going forward, the fact that I think we don't get much more of him I think is to this movie's detriment. And 
also, of course, one of the areas where we don't get him is in the big reveal at yeah. the end. You know, he doesn't play into the end game. He doesn't fulfill his book role of deliberately lying mm-hmm. to Harry to mislead him so that he goes to the ministry. We have, instead of in the book where he says out, we have in the movie he says away with you. So they're kind of giving you an—it's reduced to an Easter egg. It's right. an Easter egg instead of overt plot. And then— because we don't have this betrayal of creature, we have no need for his redemption and right. hallows. Like, there's a lot of actual ripple effect consequence to cutting yeah. down his arc here. And obviously, there's a larger, they just don't really put the house elves in this movie. And then right. they expect you to care when Dobby comes back. And sure, you do, but it's annoying that it has to come to that. But speaking of creature not being in the endgame, let's just talk about what the endgame is. Right. This is my single biggest worst, even though I'm not leading with it. Or ending with it, and then instead sure. putting it in the middle of a list of 50 complaints. This is my biggest gripe. The entire post-prophecy debrief is yeah, it's, like 10 seconds it's long. It's literally like 10 seconds. It's so short that it all shows up as one quote on the IMDb page. Yeah. Like it's one block on the quote list. We spent literally an hour talking about that, that chapter That was the thing the that I thought about as I was one watching this. One hour that, talking about as one I, chapter? As, to let people a little bit behind the veil. When we were writing that chapter. Yes. The Lost spent, Prophecy, chapter 37. Outlining and outlining and outlining for hours. And then a moment of real panic for me <laughs> after I had produced pages and pages, pages and pages of outline to realize that I was like four pages into, into the, the chapter. chapter. Yes. That was a moment of terror. But I think it's indicative of how dense and emotionally dense and plot dense that chapter is Every, before you even get to what essentially the movie makes the hammerline is so uh, I cared about you too much. Right. right. This was like a priceless binge mode moment where we basically in our process both just turned to each other and said the same thing. And I think I said three pages and you said five, but we were both like, oh, my God. And it's because every single sentence matters. Everything about Harry's life. Every single thing about Harry's life is discussed in that chapter. And granted, part of, again, we've discussed this at length, part of what matters and makes it so impactful is what Dumbledore still doesn't share in those moments. But he shares so much. They talk about the prophecy. They talk about Creature. They talk about Sirius. They talk about Lily and her protection and her sacrifice. Harry has so much rage for Dumbledore and the choices that Dumbledore's made. And there's none of that accountability. It is. I talked earlier about how Radcliffe— pitches Harry's emotional state more his weariness than his rage, even though he does say, I'm so angry all the time. And in that scene, it is quite true. Mm-hmm. It's more of a world weariness than right. a, I am so fucking mad at you. Right. And even after the, we can't even call it a change, even after the complete compression and borderline removal of the Harry Dumbledore conversation that is among the most important things in the books, there is then another chapter in the book that is with some of the most emotionally gutting Mm -hmm. and stirring sequences. And we don't get them at all. Mm -hmm. We do not get the mirror. The mirror is not in the movie. Sirius giving Harry the mirror. Harry discovering the mirror. The bitter regret of Harry, first of all, thinking about, well, what if I had just used this? Could things have been different? But also that moment where he thinks he's going to be able to see him and talk to him again. And then, of course, the ensuing conversation that Harry has in the book with Nearly Headless Nick— The idea that in a world full of magic where you think everything is possible and you are in a castle surrounded by imprints of the dead, that somebody or something time and time again is going to force you to think, am I going to get to see this person again? Am I going to get to have this love in my life again? And to have that ripped away from him in the book is so impactful and important and it's just not here and that sucks. 
quickly, a couple of the rapid fire ones. The prophecy just everybody's standing there and you can quibble about whether you think they can hear, but you shouldn't have to ask that question. You shouldn't have to say, can Ron and Hermione and everyone else who's standing there mere feet away from Harry hear the prophecy? Because guess what? The point is that that is an impossible weight that he and Dumbledore are carrying and that Harry has to think, when will I ever be able to tell people this? And they may be just heard. And that's absurd. I also just wish we got to see more of the Department of Mysteries, the time room, the brain room, no locked room. What I saw was great. I wanted so much more. Yes. And then there's just a lot of little weird, like, not understanding magic and muggles and things like that. that. Harry pulling his wand in front of Dudley's friends. The confidential ministry letter being a howler that fucking muggles can hear on the heels of Harry getting in trouble for performing magic in front of a muggle. His advance guard leads him on a fucking flight past, like, a party yacht. What? Yeah, it's like, what happened to the statute of secrecy? If it's so important, why is this fucking letter speaking aloud in front of muggles? Truly ludicrous. And then just generally, as I stated before, and I went into it before, but just again, Hermione loses so much of what made her really, really, really great in Order of the Phoenix. It's a tour de force for her, that book. It's fabulous. And we get really very little of it to basically none. All right, number three. The Extremely Goblet of Fire voice, I Love Magic, award for best use of, depiction of, or introduction of a magical ability or item or place or thing. Let me start with one that I believe will be controversial. Oh, okay. Um, I don't like, mm-hmm. let me state this first up front. I don't like the fact that apparating is basically flying. Oh, yeah. I don't think that's controversial. That said, <laughs> I kind of like the way it looks, that misty okay. kind of like yeah. when the order comes in and it's just like, oof, and the kind of yeah. mist comes down. That looks really cool, even though I disagree with what it's doing. Second part of that is, and I know is this is the critique of that is, why is there no mist around the twins when they appear behind Molly? That's anyway. But I like the way it looks, even though I disagree with what it's doing. Let me tell you That's one, one of the things I hate about how sure. it looks. I get it. It looks cool. It's yeah. a cool bit of movie making. One of the key lines in the film and the book alike is the world isn't split into good people and Death Eaters, and yet their apparition is literally reduced to Death Eaters are black, black and a.k.a. bad, right and the Order of the Phoenix is white, white, a.k.a. good. Like, the morality in this story is a little more complex yeah, than that, or at least lame. it should that be. That was lame. What else? Thestrals look beautiful. Fabulous. They look beautiful. Great job on the Thestrals. I'm so grateful that they didn't fuck that up. Yeah, Like, they look graceful and majestic. Also, the baby Thestral is just fabulous, and it just makes me so excited. Even more excited than I already was for the baby Niffler. Let me just say that the baby Thestral was clearly a... What if some people find them scary? We have to make them cute. cute. It's yeah. so That's naked. Smart, so naked. <laughs> but I was so ready to just be like, fine. Yeah. I think it's <laughs> cute. <laughs> <That's great. laughs> They're so, so cool. Like, yeah. I also just love that moment that we get when Harry and Luna are bonding while yeah. Luna's feeding the Thestrals. And she says, people avoid them because they're a bit. And he finishes her sentence and mm. says, different. Like, that's just, I don't know. That's great. I quite like, despite my complaint from mere minutes ago about not getting more of the Department of Mysteries in particular, which I stand by, I like the look and the aesthetic of the Ministry of Magic I did in too. general, specifically the atrium. That is Loved very it. cool. The touch of this massive banner with Fudge's face kind of really cements him as a, yeah, as a fascist. Let me just say, cool moment in the duel when oh, yeah. uh, Voldemort breaks all the glass in the atrium and it shreds Fudge's great banner. That was a really cool moment. 
I also just think the Hall of Prophecies looks incredible. Yeah, and that's great. when they literally smash thousands and thousands of years of recorded human history and prophecy because they they, they feel like I didn't need to escape. It looks damn cool when they do that. I, I also, even though I don't like that the archway, that the veil itself is like more of this like cloudy mist yeah. as opposed to the way it's described in the book, the stone, the archway, the dais, that looks very cool. Obviously, we talked about not liking the plot around the Room of Requirement and the way that that's handled, but what about the the physicality of it? Do you enjoy the way that they rendered the Room of Requirement? Yeah, I thought it was okay. Where's all the stuff? That's my thing. Where's all the stuff? Where's all the stuff? It was watered down. I did like that there was that kind of like attack dummy that was in there Uh that they needed. So, okay, there's one of the things that they need, but there's just not enough stuff in there. Yeah, I mean, I'm very grateful that it's in the movie. I love the, you know, it's brilliant. It's like Hogwarts wants us to fight back idea Mm -hmm. and how that's conveyed. But like little things, like every time that they stun each other, they fall onto hard floor instead of cushions. Like that's just stupid. Why is the room full of mirrors that as they are practicing defense skills is definitely just an actual threat to their safety and their lives? Like that would kill people at some point. Being surrounded by glass, stuff like that is just crazy. Number four. The He Was Their Friend Award for Most Effective Snapshot of Teen Angst or Romance. I'll just get this right off the bat. Ron and Hermione's Flirting, which Mm, is actually much better and much more effective than I remembered. Like, there's just, like, these little looks and these little— Ron makes a lot of small comments that are great. There's a moment when they sit on either end of Harry in the Gryffindor common room— and Ron just keeps throwing her looks that are wonderful. And you could feel it coming. That's what Ron was saying. I can feel it coming. <laughs> he really can. I feel like this is the movie where Rupert Grant probably was like, I'm going to get to kiss Emma Watson one day. That's yeah, dope. Yeah, he's actually like, wait a second. <laughs> I would actually be into this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there are those great little moments between them. Like when he's like, oh, Hermione, I'm so, if I'm ever mean to you again. And she says, then I'll know you've gone back to normal. Like there's a real chemistry between No, there is. Like moment. when she's like, Okay, I'll write the introduction and that's yeah, it. Yeah. And he's like, you're the greatest I, witch. But there is a little bit totally. of heat. Like, and then when they escape from the Inquisitorial Squad and she's got that, that was clever, Ron. And he says, it's been known to happen. Like, those things yeah. between them are good. My favorite, though, of course, is not even Harry's kiss, which, you know, great. Good for Harry. Go Very get wet. some. Get some wetness, my guy. But the trio, Harry, Hermione, and Ron— discussing the kiss after. Like, again, I think it's a perfect scene in the book, so if it had just been done to the letter, I would have been grateful. But the way that the film handles it, I think, is, like, really compelling. It's a particularly good scene for Rupert Grant. He's got that, like, nervous He's good in this movie. He is. I love the way that the three of them are sort of reduced to giggling at the end of it. It just feels really true to life for me, like the way the teenagers would sit around and talk. It's awkward. That's how it would be, yes. Yeah, I, I love it. And then... I love the moment when, after they're coming back from the hogshead, Hermione says, in front of the whole group that's walking back at that time, Cho couldn't take her eyes off you, could she? Like, I like that, like, how teenagers gossip about who their friends want to be dating. That also feels very true to life to me. After the DA meeting, when Hermione and Ron are on stage in front of everyone, and everyone's like, oh, Fred and George are taking bets on who's going to win. I love the moment after Hermione 
kicks Ron's ass when yeah. the boys and the girls are kind of huddling on opposite sides of the room. And the twins and, taking bets on yeah, it. Yeah, the different ways that they're reacting to what happened. That's just really great. I love the way that when Grop gives Hermione the, the bike handle and Ron's like, you stay away from right? I know, that was really <laughs> She's going to be my girlfriend one day. I just love that. There's a lot of good stuff in this movie, again, considering how dark and serious it is. I'll say, and my other one, my last one, some real Luna Harry sparks. Some real sparks. Oh, yeah. Especially at that end scene when they clasp hands. Listen, I don't know if anybody out there remembers being 15. But you hold hands with a girl. That is, I oh, mean, yeah. you're basically going out at that you're point. You're basically married yes. at that point. <laughs> like, so some real great sparks there. And, all, and the tenderness of that scene really translates from the book. Like yeah. when she's like, I'm just looking for my things, but it's the final night. I so I really need them back now. And it just like the, the warmth that Harry feels towards her in that moment, you could really feel it. Look, I want to be clear. I've always been Team Harry Ginny. I don't want this to be interpreted as not being pro Harry Ginny because I am pro Harry Ginny. But I ship Harry Luna pretty hard, like still to this day. I just think there's something there that he really can't is. find in anybody else. Right. There's a uh, unvarnished joy at the magical world that they inhabit. Yes, she keeps saying stuff that we're not even sure like stuff exists right. that she's bringing up, but she is delighted by their world in a way that the rest of the people around them really aren't? Yes. She opens his heart and his mind. She gives him new perspective. And I think the fact that they feel like they are both different from other people mm-hmm. is also what brings them together. Yeah. And that's really special. Last thing, you know, this isn't teen romance, but just while we're talking about romance, can I ask you if you've ever noticed that Umbridge's wand looks like a butt plug? Hello! <laughs> Have you Listen, ever noticed that? If you use it that way, can you cast like a Scourgeify everyone, on your own wand? Jesus. How does that work? Everyone out there, one, go back, watch <laughs> scenes in this movie and watch for specifically at the wand. Also, there's a moment in this when Umbridge does her first class and she's walking down the aisle and the Patil sisters like <laughs> lean over almost like looking at her ass in a way that is weird. Here's how you put it in Slack when you sent us the screenshot. When she mean but thick. (laughs) I would like to say I put a peach emoji under that, and I'm still waiting on Cram and Isaac to get that tally up to three. Number five, sights and sounds. Most notable hair, costume, score, CGI element, or visual. We're obviously both in agreement here on number one. It's not even close. The Voldemort-Dumbledore duel is masterful movie making. It's masterful movie making. There's a lot of people who will be like, well, it doesn't hold a candle to what it does in the books. Fine, fine, fine. I agree. Again, as a piece of fiction on its own, it delivered for me. It delivers. Here's what that scene needs to do in the movie. It needs to look cool. It needs to look cool and it looks 100% cool. I love the liquidity of the energy between their wands. I love when Voldemort pulls the energy in and then blows that snake of fire up into the sky. Wow. It feels like a dance. It really does. It feels like a choreographed dance, and that's what it should feel like. They are tapping into something elemental about the world around them, and they are pulling that energy from the world into their bodies and their wands and then pushing it back outward in the way that they have decided it should be controlled. I think the thing that that I like about it best in the movie— You watch that, and you think, I think, oh, 
Harry's not close to these two. Yeah, that's that's in the terms same of thing. his power, like the power and the ability on display. Like that's, it's that's levels seen, and levels and levels beyond what Harry has. Right, at that and moment. and I actually think that is like imperative I to think, establish. I agree with you so because of course it makes his ultimate victory all the more impressive, and it makes the message of what actually matters. You know, his courage, his love, his choices, his heart, not his skill with a wand all the more meaningful. But in order for that message to be conveyed properly, you have to understand that the skill gap is that big. Yeah. Like Dumbledore and Voldemort, we're talking all time here. All time. All time. Also, just the fact that either one of them is casting something that would decimate anyone else in this world, and they're countering each other to the point that when Voldemort finally throws all the glass in the hall at Dumbledore and Dumbledore manages to turn it into sand, mm-hmm. harmless. Yes. The way that Voldemort is finally like, I love this that. is exhausting. Know. You know, They're like, so evenly matched. Yeah, it's great. That's fabulous. Another one that we agree on, the twins exit. Wonderful. The fireworks look great. Just visually stunning. Yeah. The dragon firework finally oh, like coming at Umbridge and then snapping at her. Them flying away through yes. the W, like an artist tagging their work is just chef's kiss perfect. Yeah, yeah. I love it. This is normally a positive category where we laud things that we think look dope, but we both made a note about this. Grop looks real dumb. Grop looks awful. <laughs> Not at all what I thought he looked like. Why does why, he look like a cartoon? Yeah, why does he look like a boy? I don't get it. Like, the visual palette doesn't match the rest of the film. I don't get it at all. I was sure, by the way, in the lead up to the film when I was thinking, how are they going to, because the runtime came out, right? The runtime came out and people were like, what, how is this even possible? They're shedding hundreds of pages of storytelling yeah. here. They must. What are they losing? People thought Grop was just going to be cut out of the movie. Because you have to sacrifice things, so why put him in? So I was surprised he was in there in the first Same. place, and I'm glad he was, but then it's like, man, he looks real dumb. He looks t- Why does his nose dumb. look like that? I don't know. Not- Another thing that I really don't like is changing the centaurs, and that's established film canon at this point. The centaurs are in Sorcerer's Stone, and first of all, we don't get the sylph. We don't get the sylph friends in this movie, which is a real bummer. But just more broadly, the centaurs are reduced in this film and their redesign to, like, they neigh like horses. And the centaurs are supposed to be advanced, highly intellectual, thoughtful beings. Like, that's the point. That's what makes what Umbridge says to them so insulting. And I don't really get why they're redone that way to make them more like beasts and less like highly sentient beings. All right. Number six. Yeah. Best quote. As usual, I have 700, so why don't you go first? I think that this is very much a action movie moment, but I really dug it quite a bit. So when Umbridge is being taken away by the centaurs, Mm -hmm. she says, tell them I mean no harm. And Harry says, I'm sorry, Professor. I must not tell lies. And then they gallop off with her. I was like, you know what? That's like a very almost Arnold Schwarzenegger movie kind of moment, but I like it. It's good. And it's also, I think, important to establish that Harry is capable of some savagery. Right. Like, that's important. Yeah. I think, you know, we dunk on Michael Gambon's Dumbledore quite a bit. So I think it's important to give him credit, in this case, for a couple of his lines. I think some of his best Dumbledore moments are in this film. There's obviously still plenty of less than ideal ones. But the way that he comes into Harry's hearing and does the Albus Percival Wolfric Brian Dumbledore and the ensuing line about arriving three hours early, those are those are pretty well done. And they feel like maybe the moments where he actually is tapped into how Dumbledore is supposed to be more effectively than at any other point. Obviously, the other great line and great line reading from Gambon that I'm just 
I think we're both extremely grateful that he conveyed in the way that we would expect based on the line in the book is that it was foolish of you to come here tonight, Tom line. Yeah, like, you need it. You need, need that, that to land, and it, it really does in the film. We already talked about Sirius's line to Harry when he gives him the photo, but just to reiterate, anyway, I suppose you're the young ones now. Like, yeah. we talk a lot about how the adults failed by putting so much on the children, yeah. but a line like that really repositions it as like, you take the power now. Right. And that's as a generational important. change. Yeah. Similarly, along those same lines, I really like what Harry says to the DA. It's a little cheesy, but I like some cheese. Every great witcher wizard has started out as nothing more than what we are today, students. If they can do it, why not us? Why not us? The way that Cho says mistletoe. I just want to hear that on loop forever. <laughs> mistletoe. Mistletoe. I can't do it. Mistletoe. How about some Seamus Ave? Man, so they, he, again, reference it is back. Speaking of moms, I love when Sirius refers to his as charming woman. <laughs> oh, well, let me give you let me give you one that I, I actually did quite like. So Fred and Joe talk about them apparating. They apparate behind the MILF whose hair looks great in this movie. I just want to say that. And he goes, <laughs> oh, you too. Just because you can use magic now doesn't mean you need to be pulling out your wands at every chance you get. I love that little really moment of levity from the mill. That was fabulous. Also, She's like wonderful. the extendable ear look great. That's it. It did. I like when Crookshanks just like pulls it's it and chews great. on it. We already said, but again, to reiterate, Sirius saying the world isn't split into good people and Death Eaters. That's a book line, but it needed to be in the film. Glad it was. This is gut-wrenching. When Sirius says to Harry... When all this is over, we'll be a proper family, you'll see. Love that. That is a dagger in the fucking heart. How about this line from Hermione, which, um, listen, not to get political, but I think this is particularly poignant in the year of our Lord, 2018. He's going to get us all killed just because he can't face the truth. Yes. Yikes. Not as good as in the book, but I'm glad we still get some version of Dumbledore dunking on corn by saying... I thought we might hit this little snag. You seem to be laboring under the delusion that I'm going to, what was the phrase? Come quietly. Good stuff there. And we get this from Kingsley in the movie instead of Phineas oh, in right, the book. Yeah. But, well, you may not like him, Minister, but you can't deny. He's got style. <laughs> Dumbledore has got style. I love that. couple good ones from Lucius. Also versions of lines from the book that I'm glad we're in here. You know you really should learn to tell the difference between dreams and reality. Key thing for Harry is someone who, you know, tapping into that idea of it does not do to dwell on dreams and the way that dreams figure into the story. Don't you want to know the secret of your scar? Another one that I'm very glad is in here. And what did you think of this one? I think this is controversial, whether this is cheesy or really cool. But when after Voldemort stops possessing Harry before he flees and he says, you're a fool, Harry Potter, and you will lose every I didn't mind it. I like it. Yeah, I didn't mind it at all. <laughs> I like when Voldemort flexes right yeah. before he's thwarted yet again. All right, number seven. Who won the movie? Who lost the movie? One for me, Luna. Steals every scene. Same. Just steals it, steals it, steals it, steals every scene. Hits it in a way that I can't not picture her when I'm reading the books. Me too. I feel the same way. Ivana Lynch kills it. An unbelievable showing. Certainly among the most iconic 
first scenes in yes. the entire film franchise, and then she just maintains it throughout the carriage scene, the Thestral scene, giving Harry his pep talk, the scene at the end. You know, anyway, my mom always said the things we lose have a way of coming back to us in the end, if not always in the way we expect. Is the writing there as stirring as in the book? No, but the way that she delivers it yeah. conveys so much. She and they, Daniel Radcliffe have a great on-screen chemistry together. I would not agree more. Even the way she, when she talks about, me and my mom, she was a very talented witch, yeah. but she liked to experiment. Really subtle work there because she doesn't modulate her voice much, but right. the sadness comes through. Yes. And it's wonderful. Like, love, like, love, love her. Similarly, with the way she says, I do feel very sad about it sometimes. Yeah. Like, it's stated matter-of-factly, but you actually still feel the heft of the emotion. And then, like, little moments where she's holding her necklace and saying it's a charm and keeps away the nargles. Like, she's away the just weird and compelling yeah. instantly love in it, a way that it, is love wonderful. Love it, love it. I'll give you another one for sure. a winner. Amelda Stunt, yeah, who she, plays Dolores Umbridge. Like, I, you have to nail that casting. That's such a good point. Of course, you, if you care about these movies and the story in any kind of way, you recoil at the yes. thought of her. But she fucking nailed it. Yeah, I mean, nailed it. That's the thing. Is like you actually have to loathe this person yeah, and and, and take her seriously. The him hims, uh, the interruptions, man. the way she moves her body, her face. Harry's Perfect. first attention is, yeah. I think, the best encapsulation of how successful the casting is. It is bone chilling. Yeah. The way she says you're going to be using a very special one of mine. Yeah, she injects a note of sadism and she brings it to the surface in a way that is disturbing. She's great. Oh yeah, she's wonderful. I will have order. Yeah. Like she is a, oh man. And little again, little touches like spraying Hagrid's door with perfume. Yeah. Little things like that that kind of on the one hand play as comedy or quirkiness and on the other hand are like, oh, this is a vile person yeah. who has no room in her heart for people or ideas that are different yeah. from her. And again, we talked about this already, but shouts to our dude Daniel Radcliffe, who does a great job in this movie. The entire film hinges on his ability to convey that he is feeling something. This is also like the handsome Daniel Radcliffe movie. I've never done any research to see if this is true, but I choose to believe that when David Yates took over for this film, and he does all the films from here, he's doing all the Fantastic Beasts films, the first thing he said was, get a haircut. He looks great. <laughs> the, the change in their all of their hair from okay, who lost? Goblet to this is notable. I just think the loser is, and this is like reductive and simplistic, but it's the decision to make this film so short. Yeah. Because there's so much wonderful, rich, nuanced storytelling in the book. And a lot of it is subtle and it's internal and it's about how people feel and how they talk to each other. And yeah. it's hard to do that in a movie in a way that feels fast-paced and exciting and compelling. And I get that, but it really sucks that we don't get more of that. I wish we did. Yeah, for me, it's Hermione's characterization in general. She's reduced to just kind of being the pal when she is the mastermind behind so much of what happens in this book and is consistently the voice telling Harry, think, stop, think. You have to think about this. And it makes it so much more important that she then supports him when they go to the ministry because she disagrees. Right. But she's like, you know what? I'm going to be there anyway for you because I understand that this is important to you and you believe that this is happening. It really hurts to lose so much of that stuff. All right, friends. Yes. Working hard is important, but there's something that matters even more. Believing in binge mode. Yes. Thanks as always to Isaac Lee and Zach Cram, our indispensable producer and researcher who hide from filch with us every day. We hope that you had as much fun as we did today, that you are as excited as we are for the rest of this journey and that you'll join us again soon. For much more, including another HP Extra and, of course, our Half-Blood Prince deep dive, 
Scheduling details coming soon. Check the social media feeds. Until then, remember, after all these podcasts, after all you've suffered, we didn't want to cause you any more pain. Okay, class. Now, I need to prepare you for your... Oh, this is not working. Why is the chalk not writing? Um, whoops. <laughs> not my wand. Okay. Uh, carry on, class. I'll be right back uh, with my wand. Okay. Thank you.